Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> well, 53 years ago, I can't believe I said 23 years ago, first service, and it was fact-checked by someone. My math was terrible. April 1970, that's 53 years ago. The spacecraft Apollo 13 was crippled by an in-flight explosion. The astronauts relied on archaic navigational techniques to get back home. A slight miscalculation could have sent the ship spiraling thousands of miles off course into outer space. Even if navigation back into Earth's orbit succeeded, fears remain that the heat shield and parachutes were not functional. A mixture of fear and hope etched the faces of the NASA team and friends and family of the astronauts as they watched for any sign of a successful re-entry. Three minutes after the re-entry process begins, Walter Cronkite's voice informs the viewing audience that no space capsule has taken longer than three minutes to complete re-entry. A NASA employee continues to attempt to contact the Odyssey, saying, Odyssey, this is Houston. Do you read me? Silence is agonizing. Odyssey, this is Houston. Do you read? Silence. Odyssey, this is Houston. Do you read? Still no reply. Several minutes later, the receiver at NASA crackles. A, a, a capsule seems to materialize out of thin air onto the screen, and the parachutes look like giant flowers that have burst into bloom. A voice responds loud and clear, Hello, Houston, this is Odyssey. It's good to see you again. Friends, family, and NASA workers erupt in cheers. You know, there are times in life that like NASA's Mission Control Center in Houston trying to reestablish radio contact with Apollo 13, they may go, God, it's me. Do you read? Silence. Lord, do you hear me? Silence. Lord, are you there? We turn our attention today to Isaiah chapter 50 that addresses this very thing. Isaiah chapter 50. And I invite you, if you're not there, to turn in your Bibles and have them open to Isaiah chapter 50 as we continue in our sermon series on the book of Isaiah and why we are here. And as we come to chapter 50, I want to remind you of what I mentioned last week, that there are four key passages in Isaiah that emphasize the servant of the Lord. They're commonly called the servant songs, though I think misnamed because they don't really appear to be songs at all. But it's true that the servant of the Lord is the main feature of these four passages. And we spent the bulk of our time last week looking at the first servant passage in chapter 42. And chapter 42 described the ideal servant, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both king and servant. He did not come, as we saw last week, to throw his weight around through the use of intimidation or, or abuse of power, but rather had an attractive tenderness. He did not break the bruise. He did not crush the hurting. He did not snuff out what was left of a flickering flame. But he came to serve, not to be served. 
The compelling question from last week was, shouldn't these same virtues be seen in us as his followers? We also briefly, very briefly, touched on the second service passage found in Isaiah chapter 49. The ministry of Jesus from that passage shows us that it was not only for the benefit of Israel, but was to expand to all people that the task of being the light of the world has been passed on to us, the church. That's why we're here. We're to spread the good news to all, beginning right where we live each day. And the challenge then is to not only bring the good news, but be the good news to all those we come in contact with. Well, as we come to the third of the four servant passages today in, in, in Isaiah chapter 50, it's a picture, once again, given of the ideal servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived in absolute, unqualified obedience. You see, Jesus is the perfect model for us. Now, just to be clear, he's not only an example to be followed. That isn't why he came, so he could be an example only. He came to take our place on the cross in order to pay the penalty of our sins, what we just remembered. He came to bring salvation to all who put their trust in him and his finished work on the cross. And if we profess then to be followers of Jesus, we long to live as he lived. Not to, not to earn our salvation, but because we've been granted salvation by grace through faith. All right, the setting of chapter 50 is, is really similar to what we saw last week of the setting of chapter 42. The people of God uh, fell into uh, gross idolatry and, and, and gross sexual immorality, and they were taken away uh, into 70 years, long time, 70 years of captivity because of their sin. Now, we're not going to read the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 50. I really encourage you to do that on your own here, uh, to read those verses. But, but again, let me give you the gist of the first three verses of, of Isaiah chapter 50. And, and it really is this, that God would have had every right to abandon Judah. He would have had every right to divorce them because of their unfaithfulness. Because he's a gracious and merciful God who keeps his covenant, their sins are paid for, and God delivers them and gives them a, a, promise, a promising, glorious future. But don't miss it. These were very dark times for the people of God. How do we make it through those dark tunnels, those times when we wonder, God, do you read God, are you there? All right, let's look at Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 10. Uh, I want to ask three questions this morning, serving as my headings. The first question is, where are you getting your intake? Where are you getting your intake? Isaiah 50, verse 4, follow along. It says, the sovereign Lord has given me. Now, I just need to stop there just for a moment. Who's the me? Well, the me here cannot be Isaiah. The me here cannot be the nation of Israel, as we're going to see as we work our way through this passage. No, no, it is clear that the me here is the servant, the, the, the ideal servant, the coming Messiah, and, and for Isaiah anyway. 
The sovereign Lord has given me, the ideal servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, notice this, an instructed tongue, he says, to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. He knows the word that sustains the weary. Maybe you need that word this week. Maybe you're going to need it coming up. But I have to take a step back and ask the question, do I know what the weary need so that I can offer that timely word? And are the weary even drawn to us? Do, do the discouraged and the hurting seek you? Or will they perceive you and me as people who aren't going to make them feel better or lift them up when they're down like that, but we're going to make it worse? Joseph Bailey writes a book on this, but he shares a time in his life when he was filled with grief and, and losing a loved one. And he says this. Notice what he says, a personal testimony. He says, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. <laughs> and he finally did. He then says, another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Do others hate to see you go? Or are they, are they glad when, when, when you do go? Isaiah presents to us, as we're going to flesh out a little bit here, a Jesus who was well-taught disciple. He was a learner, a listener, who knows how to sustain anyone weary with sin or weary with life. And followers of Jesus, are, 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 we ought to be learning from Jesus. That, that's what it means to be a disciple. We're We're, we're learners. Now, this summer, we're going to be looking at the marks of a disciple from Jesus' lips in the gospel, in the gospels. But right here, we can learn of Jesus and the secret of his power. He, sovereign Lord, awakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear, now get this, to listen. Beginning in verse 5, says the same thing. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. Church, how well are you listening? There was a man who he wanted to improve his communication, so he was, just, he was directed to go see this teacher who was in this area, and he was, he was an expert in communication. He was the master communicator. And so this man sat down before this renowned teacher, and the teacher says to him, I hear you want to be a better communicator. I do, the man replied. Then there was silence. The man finally broke the silence and said, okay, I'm listening. Good, the master teacher responded, you're already learning. <laughs> you're already learning. It starts there, folks. Do you want to be a learner? Listen. Open your ears. I can safely say this. If you're talking all the time, chances are you are not a learner. Doug Larson put it this way. He said, wisdom is the reward you get 
for a lifetime of listening when you would have preferred to talk. The servant awakened each morning. The ideal servant, the Lord Jesus, awakened each morning to listen to what the Father had to say. And I'll be honest with you, until this past week, I hadn't given much thought really to this at all. I, Jesus was a learner. He, he listened. He listened to what the Father had to say. Now, this strongly suggests that he immersed himself in Scripture. Scripture, what he had was Old Testament. And that's evident by what came out. See, when tempted, Jesus quoted Scripture, right? It is written, it is written, it is written. That came out. Jesus was, was always quoting it. It spilled out of his life. It's been noticed that Je- noted that, that Jesus quotes from, from uh, uh, 24 different Old Testament books. Now, for modern-day teachers who dismiss the Old Testament or give it secondary importance to the New Testament, they're not following the example of Jesus. If you're of the mindset, the stuff written in red in the New Testament, oh, Jesus said, this is really important here. Now I got to listen. But not really the other stuff. You disagree with Jesus. I've heard someone argue to justify their position or their behavior. Well, I know, but Jesus never said it. As if, oh, that's not a slam dunk then. Then keep doing what you're doing. If Jesus didn't say it, bogus. Jesus said, every jot, every tittle, meaning right down to the very word and every part of the letter, are important. All right. To what degree are you immersing yourself in it? Or are you more of a buffet eater of God's word? You kind of pick and choose. This I like, that part, not so much. I can accept this, I'm not accepting that. Jesus immersed himself in Scripture. Where are you getting your intake? And do you know when it will reveal what you're taking in? In your reactions. When you don't have time for an action, just a reaction, it will be very obvious what spills out, what you put in there, right? Like the waitress carrying a tray of drinks and is bumped. What spills out of the glasses reveals what was in it. What spills out of you when you're bumped? The real you. What I put in there. We can say all we want. Oh, that's not me. No, it probably is. Where are you getting your intake? Are you immersing yourself in the Word of God? I mean, do you just like God's Word? I mean, I like it. No, no, the scripture guides you in your decisions and and when trouble hits, when feeling the heat of temptation, when you end of your rope, in those dark times. Church, where are you getting your intake? All right, second question is, what is it that keeps you going in the hard times, in the dark times? What is it that keeps you going in the dark, hard times? Now, what Isaiah does here is he looks down the tunnel of time And he sees things that could have only been given to him by God. 
Verse 6, I think you'll get it. Well, who is he talking about? I think we'll see. Verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Now, this describes not only inflicting pain on someone, but to pull out the beard and to spit in someone's face, they were acts of humiliation. Who's it sound like? Well, the New Testament tells us that when Jesus was arrested, And he stood before the Sanhedrin that they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. We're told the soldiers knelt in front of him, in front of Jesus, and they mocked him. They spit on him. They took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again, it tells us. And yet he did not draw back into verse 5. But look at verse 7 with me. It says, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I'll not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Jesus set his face like flint. Now, flint is the hardest of all rocks. And the figure of speech here is saying, Jesus' determination to obey is set in stone. Now, I I have some things I've set in stone about. (laughs) I hope obedience is one of those. Like, oh, I'm not going to move on this one. I hope it's this, though. Or this, I'm saying I'm not going to obey God. Now, face flints, set in stone. Nothing moved Jesus from what he was called to do. Jesus did not turn back. He did not lose his composure. He did not shrink back from doing what he was called to do. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is obedient even when it was difficult and painful. And that's the real rub, is it not? I mean, to be obedient and circumstances turn in your favor... That's one thing. But when obedience leads to more hardship, that's another matter completely. To obey and be blessed by a good outcome, that's motivation to keep me going. But what's going to sustain me? What's going to sustain us when our obedience doesn't change the circumstances one bit? It doesn't turn the dial at all. What what, what does it keep you going then? I mean, we're trying to do the right thing and, and, and we continue to face mistreatment or physical and mental anguish or, or being misunderstood. I mean, I mean, now what? I mean, I did the right thing. I took the high road. I stuck my neck out and forgave that person and everything got worse. Now what? What despair? What sustains us? Verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. He who vindicates me is near. Let that sink in. It's as if Jesus is being tried in court. And with the help of his defense attorney, no prosecuting attorney stands a chance. There'll be no case against him. Verse 8 goes on, who then will bring charges against me? Who's my accuser? Let him confront me. It's the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? Doesn't that sound a lot like Romans chapter 8? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who's raised to life. So believer, child of God, anytime those thoughts in your head suggest to you you aren't a Christian, that that sin disqualifies you for heaven, they can't stick. Don't let it stick. It's God who justifies. 
It's because of Christ's righteousness, not your own, that you're no longer under condemnation and we kept to the end. You see, any accusation can't stand up to the righteousness of Christ. None. So you're beating yourself up over some past failure. A shame robbing you of the joy of salvation. All those accusations meant to shame you and defeat you are described here. Look at the end of verse 9. They will wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Anyone who would dare to stand up to Jesus and his followers with accusations would be as useless as worn out clothes full of moth holes. He who vindicates me is near. You were wronged. God sees it. God sees it. Mind of the two boys fighting and arguing with each other. One says, you know, I'm going to go tell mom on you. The other one says, well, I'm going to go tell dad on you. Well, the first one, not be, to be outdone, says, oh, yeah, I'm going to tell God on you. <laughs> Pretty good. Guess what? You don't have to. He already sees it. He already knows. He already knows. Listen, no wrong ever committed against you, not even in your darkest hour, has ever been missed. Never been missed. It is God who vindicates us. No one has a case against us, but God is for us. You see, church, at the end of the day, that is all we need right there. I mean, it'd be nice to be vindicated by others, but we don't need it. Jesus' darkest hour did not turn back because God who vindicates me is near. Don't flee the very thing God's doing in you in your suffering. In our society, we do everything we can to eliminate suffering. The expectation is for that doctor, that counselor, that therapist, whatever it is, take away my pain. I get that. I get it. I mean, if there's a place to get relief, go for it. I mean, all things being equal, not anything illegal or immoral. <laughs> but, but, but it's in that suffering, church, that growth can come. We want to flee from it. it might be in it. Bring you to maturity. Great theologian and biblical scholar Martin Luther, who delivered many sermons, noted that there are three rules for interpreting the Bible accurately. Three, three, three rules for interpreting the Bible accurately. Pray, meditate, and suffer. Now, we understand the first two. The third one? His point was that God uses suffering to grow and mature his children. It's, it's sometimes in those moments of suffering, the scripture comes alive. Oh, yeah, I quoted Romans 8, 28 all the time. Wow, it means something right now. I'm going through suffering. Richard Baxter said, suffering so unbolts the door of the heart that the word has easier entrance. All right, I need to give you a third question here. Is can you trust God in the dark? And you trust God in the dark? This is what it all boils down to. And as we come to the last two verses here in Isaiah 50, the focus shifts 
It moves from a description of the ideal servant, the Lord Jesus, to an exhortation directed to all the listeners and readers. It's directed at you. It's directed at me. All who profess to be followers of this servant. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now, I want you to notice something here. The person who fears the Lord, the person who obeys, is also the same person who walks in darkness. How is it that a person who fears God and obeys God walks in darkness and has no light? Didn't Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Yes, Jesus did say that, John 8, 12. So Isaiah's words here might seem rather confusing. But the darkness in Isaiah 50 is not the same darkness as in John 8, 12. The darkness Jesus speaks about in John 8, 12 is an abandonment of God. It's to go away from God's ways and, and turn away from God and, and walk the path of Satan's lies and, 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 and the ways of the world. That's darkness. But the darkness in Isaiah 50 is a metaphor for hardship and adversity and pain and lack of understanding. Those times in your life and you're bewildered when it's silence. God, do you read? Do you enjoy the, the darkness? I mean, isn't it incredibly unsettling to not see what is ahead? An elderly woman stood on a busy street corner, hesitant to cross, even when the signal allowed her to cross the street. And she stood there overwhelmed. She didn't move. Well, as she waited, a gentleman came up beside her and asked, may I cross over with you? Relieved, she thanked him and took his arm. And as they walked uh, across the street, uh, the man seemed confused. He zigzagged all over the place, almost ran into some idle cars there. Horns were honking at, him, at them, and, and it was just a disaster. <laughs> when they got to the other side, the woman yelled in anger, He almost got us killed. What are you, blind? Actually, I am blind, he said. That's why I asked if I could cross with you. <laughs> See, it matters. It matters who or what we're holding on to to make it through life. And much of what is offered to us from the world is nothing more than a blind person helping us cross the street. It's a disaster. Writer and counselor Larry Crabb asked these pointed questions about life in the dark times. He says, when we bump into something we can't explain when you find ourselves in a dark tunnel and not sure how to get out, is our stronger impulse to trust God or figure out what to do? Do we quickly reach for a flashlight to help us see the road ahead, or do we firmly grasp the hand of the only one who can see in the dark? Can we trust God in the dark? I mean, there, I mean come on. There are times in, in life that just don't make sense. We heard testimony of that earlier. There's a broken person speaking there. Things don't make sense. You work hard at some things and don't seem to be moving forward. And you have the cry of the heart that says, forget it, it's not worth it. Things don't make sense. 
There was this Christian man who dealt with the horrors of German bombing raids in London during World War II. And he speaks about regularly encountering issues without answers, emotional mazes from which there appeared to be no exit. And after months of just sleepless nights, just going, this doesn't make sense, he labeled the second drawer on the right side of his desk, awaiting further light. And whenever he ran into an unmanageable issue, he'd write it on a slip of paper, he'd put it in the awaiting further light drawer. I talk about, uh, you know, a file that I have called Things I Don't Understand. It's thick. Sometimes he's got to write it out and go, boop, in there. Doesn't make sense to me. Waiting for their light. But it's in the darkness, though, that life suddenly becomes unpredictable. It's in the darkness that we can easily stumble. That's why the first thing we do in entering a dark room is what? We look for a light switch. We need to turn that on. Do whatever we can to get out of that difficulty quickly and, and with the least amount of pain as possible. Maybe run. Darkness exposes us to what we cannot manage. But we still try to, don't we? That's why it says in verse 11, Isaiah 50, but now, here's the alternative to trusting God in the dark. But now, all you who light fires, provide yourselves with flaming torches. Go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You'll lie down in torment. Now, what in the world is this getting at? Well, fire lighting and flaming torches are figures of speech to make a point that we will come up with our own ideas and ways out of the dark rather than rely on God to take us through the suffering to the other sides. And since darkness is unpleasant, right, we will do anything we can to get out of it. So if that means medicating ourselves with some distraction or defaulting to some superficial pleasure to get our minds off the dark realities, we'll take it. See, when the discomfort of the darkness becomes too much, we reach for that torch of our own making for relief. When the despair of life, maybe it's about marriage, or maybe it's about lost loved ones, or, or work, or, or some broken relationship, or ministry, or sickness, or whatever it might be, and when that starts coming over us, there are all kinds of options for lighting our own fires, of alleviating the pain. We strike the match. Which is it for you? What is it for you? Life seem unbearable. You're squinting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, even right in front of you. Frustrated, confused, not wanting to obey in this case. You're looking for a match to strike. What is your torch that you want to light right now to get you out of this? Don't do it. Brian, don't do it. Isaiah here says, if we walk by the light of our own torches, our own making, we'll be burned. To me, it sounds a lot like Proverbs 16, 25, that says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, leads to death, destruction. See, when you find yourself in a dark time, do you have a stronger urge to trust God or figure out yourself what to do? I'm not saying we don't use our brains, not my point. But the temptation, though, is to create our own light is always before us. I mean, it really boils down 
to the sin of self-sufficiency. You figure your way out of the dark is better than God's way. Even a bad solution to your problem seems better than no solution at all. Can you trust God in the dark? It's been said, never doubt in the dark what you learned in the light. Keep obeying even the dark times. Obedience is always a winning move. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Walking through a dark time in obedience is better than walking in the light of our own devices. Brace it. Walking in the light uh, uh, through a dark time in obedience is better than walking in the light of our own devices. Because in those times, we can't seem to get a clear answer. We're calling out, God, this is Brian. Do you read me? God, do you, are you, you there? Houston did not know if the crew on Apollo 13 were there or not. But church, that is not something we have to wonder about, whether God is listening when we speak in those moments of darkness. See, it's we who are disoriented in the dark, not God. Stuart Strachan tells of a time when he and some friends went scuba diving for the very first time in the Cayman Islands. They took some classes and then they were invited by their instructor to go on a night dive. Never happened over here, I can tell you that right now. But he says, now when we were told about this, to me it sounded like a great adventure. All right, teach its own. The instructor told us that we'd use underwater flashlights and I was sure with all great modern technology that we'd be able to see just fine. As it turns out, he says, not so much. Right as we entered the water, I was alarmed to find out that I could see barely anything at all, and what I could see was only a foot or so directly where the flashlight was shining. My discomfort only intensified as we descended along a coral shelf, and I found myself all disoriented and unsure exactly which way was even up. He says, now I want you to picture being essentially blind underwater with a relatively limited amount of air for you to breathe. He says, you start to question which way's up and you're swimming along a coral shelf that makes it such that you cannot just swim in what you assume is up, though again, you're not quite sure because after all, you're disoriented by the darkness. He says, at this point, I was in complete freak out mode. While we were part of a group, there were multiple groups diving, so I was unsure if I was even in the right group. He says, but I learned something about night diving. There's always a way to know which way is up. And the way to do that is to feel your bubbles. He says, that may sound strange, but when you're diving, your breaths produce bubbles. And so as long as you can feel which direction they're going, you'll always know which way is up because bubbles always go up. (laughs) And I thought, isn't that like life sometimes? We get all disoriented. I don't know which way's up. We end up on a path that we didn't anticipate. At times, we feel so lost. But just as a night diver can trust the bubbles, we too can trust that God will take care of us when everything seems dark and uncertain. Listen, it's not, you got this. We love to say that. I understand it. You got this. No, 
No, it's not you got this. God's got this. God's got this. Good thing. Singer Lauren Daigle wrote these words, Hold on to me when it's too dark to see you, when I am sure I have reached the end. Hold on to me when I forget I need you. When I let go, hold me again. Can you trust in the faithful arms of God to hold you? The one who sees it all can be trusted over what your eyes can't see. Let's pray. God, thank you. I mean, who knew Isaiah 50 would just speak to us like this? It's right where we live life. I didn't hear a testimony of it earlier. I mean, that was a sermon in itself. That's you. That's you. We thank you for that. Thank you that this passage, it came alive in my heart. And I just pray that it's come alive in our hearts this morning. We'll grab the, the principles, the takeaways, whatever it is you want us to grab a hold of. But at the end of the day, thank you, Lord, for holding on to us. Because we let go. Thank you for that. Help us to trust. Help us to rely. That's what we're going to sing right now in Jesus' name. Amen.